I um, when Kathy mentioned the number of women, I just thank you all for inviting me back. It is such a privilege to get to do this and thank you all for listening when, I, when I'm up here. Um, it really is a privilege and an honor to get to do this with you all. Um, so I'm very happy to be back with you all uh, today. So Isaiah is one of my favorite biblical characters, and he's been one of my favorite character, biblical characters since about the third or fourth grade when this little classmate of mine handed me a card that had my name on it, and it had the verse from Isaiah 41.10 on it. And I love that card. I carried it with me for like decades, I think. I had that little card with me. I bet if I looked hard enough, I could find it. Um, And I memorized that verse, and it became a life verse for me even. And it wasn't until many years later in college, in fact, when I finally studied Isaiah. I did a Beth Moore Bible study called Breaking Free. Anybody do that that study? Yeah, yeah. And it was about Isaiah. Um, And that was the first time I did a deep dive into who Isaiah is or who he was. So I've loved Isaiah for a really long time, and when Sissy asked me if I would teach this semester, I said, yes, of course. I love Isaiah. This is going to be fun. Um, But when I looked into Isaiah again, it had been some years since I'd looked in depth at who Isaiah was, and I did it again, I realized that when I looked at Isaiah the first time back in college many years ago, it was all about me. I looked at the passages and and the story of Isaiah, and I was like, oh, where am I in this passage? What what does this mean for me? And this time when I went to Isaiah, all I saw was God, what God was doing, who God is, and how he shows up in the story of Isaiah. And that really, the story of Isaiah is the story of God. Yes, Isaiah is important. Yes, the people are important, but it's really about God. So now my favorite verse takes on a completely different feel than what it used to. Um, Like I said, at first it was focused on my feelings, my fear, but now I see God's message to his people. I see his promise of hope and deliverance, and when I take that verse, Isaiah 41.10, and place it back in its context, I realize that it speaks to God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to his people for all time even when things are hard, and even when it feels like there is no hope. So my favorite verse, like I said, is Isaiah 41.10, and this is what it says. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So tonight we're going to look, or tonight, today, (laughs) we're going to look at Isaiah 6. Um, It's sort of the origin story for Isaiah, the moment that he receives his commissioning, his calling. And um, this commissioning is a very difficult task, harder than I think Isaiah even knew that it was going to be. And Isaiah is going to be the bearer of bad news for his people. And it's going to be bad news that's going to, they're going to endure this bad news and these trials for generations, for a long, long time. And so for the people and for Isaiah, God's message against fear in Isaiah 41.10 is going to be greatly needed. It's going to be essential for them to not fear as they continue to go through trial after trial after trial. So my hope for us today as we go through uh, Isaiah 6 is that you would leave here knowing that it all points to God. 
I think we know that and we would say that, but I want us to really believe it, that this story of Isaiah, it really points to God. God calls Isaiah, God cleanses Isaiah, God sends Isaiah, and God takes care of Isaiah and the people. God is their God and God is our God as well. The same God that was there for them is the same God that is here for us today. So I grew up in uh, predominantly black churches. Uh, My first church, the church that I was baptized in, was this tiny uh, black Baptist church with red carpet and red uh, cushions on the pews. Uh, We went every Sunday. It was called Greater Mount Olive Baptist Church. My grandmother was an usher. She wore those white gloves that were like spotless. And um, it, it held maybe 50 people. So that was my first church experience. Then my second was an African Methodist Episcopal Church, an AME church. And I don't know if you guys know anything about the AME uh, denomination, but it was the first denomination founded by black people in, let's see, 1816. And that's the church where I spent most of my adolescent years. It was a little bit bigger. It held maybe 100 people, but it had the same red carpet and the same red cushions on the pews. And my dad was a deacon, he was on the steward committee, he was in the men's ministry, and we were at that church all the time. And then the last church that formed my childhood was my grandmother's church on my father's side. So my dad grew up in North Carolina in like the backwoods of North Carolina where there's nothing but tobacco fields. And every time we would go home to visit family, we would go to this little tiny white church that was in the backwoods in North Carolina. And it didn't have AC, and so in the summer in North Carolina, everyone had those paper fans, you know, fanning themselves to death, and it wasn't working. Um, And that church was completely different than the other two churches that I grew up in because it was a holiness church. And I don't know if you know anything about holiness churches, but in my opinion, holiness churches, they're charismatic, but they put charismatic churches to shame. That's... (laughs) It's a lot that happens in those churches. Um, but those are really formative for me. And so it's three black churches, three very different black churches that formed me growing up. Um, but these very different black churches all had something in common. They always had a preacher who could make a rhyme out of the sermon title. Every time. Almost every black church I've been in, they do that. But I've also been in a lot of white churches where they do that too, so I think maybe it's a southern thing, but it it happens. So today our sermon title is a rhyme, (laughs) and I'm so excited. Um, It is Woe, Low, Go. I know, I was like doing the message, and I was just giggling as I was writing because I was thinking back to my pastors, and I was like, man, they would be so proud of me if they knew that I had done this. Um, But I'm going to be honest with y'all. So I gave you all this description of how it's like, you know, part of black culture. But this title actually came from a commentary written by a white professor named Dr. Thomas Constable in his commentary on Isaiah. So I can't can't, um, say I came up with it by myself. We have to give Dr. Constable his credit. Um, But he broke up Isaiah in this way, and I thought it was just perfect for us today. So woe, low, go. And we're going to work our way through that as we go through Isaiah 6 this morning. Okay, so we're going to jump right in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Isaiah 6. It'll be on the screens as well, and we're going to begin in verse 1. 
So it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell the people, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, be never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So that's Isaiah 6. There's a lot going on there, right? And what is really happening? Well, our friend Isaiah is coming face to face with God. The God that he has followed, he is now in this vision face to face with him. And I love reading the Old Testament, y'all, especially as we've gone through the Old Testament together, because crazy stuff happens in the Old Testament, especially. Um, and I, I can't help but think, what is Isaiah thinking in this moment? Like, what is he feeling? Was he creeped out? Was he scared, maybe? Um, well, thankfully, Isaiah tells us, right? It says right there in his word that he cried out, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. Woe is our first word. Woe in the dictionary means great sorrow or distress. It says that it's even used, um, often used hyperbolically because it's, it's an overreaction. When we say woe, usually when people use it, it's kind of an overreaction. So Isaiah has come face to face with God, specifically the Lord Almighty. And in some of your translations, it might even say the Lord of armies, right? Pointing to the power of God. And I can just imagine that he's like just done. He's probably throwing up his hands and he's saying, I just saw God. Now I'm going to die. Everything, this is crazy. What's going to happen? No one can look at God and survive. So I'm just done. I'm just going to die right? And so he's experiencing great distress and this great sorrow, and he says, I am ruined. And why does he feel this way? Because he's unclean. He's standing in the presence of God, and he is unclean. He's a man, he says, with sinful lips and, and ministering to a people who are also sinful, and now he has seen the king. 
So I just picture Isaiah maybe hyperventilating, waving his hands, just kind of hysterical about what he has just witnessed. But one thing that Isaiah is not doing is overreacting. Because if you came face to face with God, this would be a natural reaction. This would be an obvious reaction to anyone who comes face to face with God. Because Isaiah recognizes who he is because he recognizes who God is. And so this is the natural response. And Isaiah is a man with some status, right? It says in your books, it gives you a little bit about him, right? He's someone who's close to the king. He's um, respected by his peers. He's a statesman. He's a preacher. Similar to Paul, if Isaiah wanted to boast about himself, he could. Isaiah could have, you know, entered into this vision and maybe, you know, put back his shoulders, puffed himself up and felt like, yes. I'm supposed to be in front of the Lord. This is where I'm supposed to be. I can handle this, right? He had every reason to do that. He had all the position and all the power. But instead, he sees God and he falls apart. He recognizes his brokenness and he recognizes that there is nothing in him, nothing about him that can make himself clean, that can allow him to stand before a holy God. In fact, he sees nothing but this tremendous chasm that exists between himself and God. And so rightfully, he cries out, woe. Woe is the position that we should all take when we recognize who we are compared to who God is. Woe, despair at the realization that there is nothing that we can do to bridge that gap. There's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. And so we feel, woe, we are unclean. So Isaiah recognizes his sinful nature in light of a holy God. And then something strange happens, which is weird to say something strange happens because this whole chapter is pretty strange, <laughs> but it does. So the angels, the seraphim, right, they're described as having these six wings. Two are covering their faces, two are covering their feet, and then with the other two, they are flying. Um, and so one of those angels pulls a burning coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with it. So we're going to geek out a little bit on um, these angels because I found uh, the research that I did on them a little bit fascinating, especially in this section with what they're doing. So this is the only place in scripture where the seraphim are described. And um, they are in the presence of God. These are the angels that are constantly in the presence of God. And they have one job, to proclaim the holiness of God over and over again. They say, holy, holy, holy. Three times they say it um, as, as, a, as a sign of the perfection of who God is. His holiness is perfect. Holy, holy, holy. Over and over, emphasizing the perfect nature of that attribute. And then the word seraphim means fiery ones. So if it's not weird enough that these angels have six wings, they're also engulfed in flames. They are the fiery ones. And so this angel that is engulfed in flames goes to the altar, picks up a coal, a burning coal from the altar of God, and brings it and touches Isaiah's lips with it. But why did an angel, oh, and it says, this is the other thing, it says he didn't pick it up with his hand. What did he use? He used tongs. So why is an angel engulfed in flames picking up a hot coal using tongs? Well, your first response might be, well, because it's hot. It's hot. But they're engulfed in flames. 
So it's not hot to them, right? So there must be something else going on. And the other thing that I found in one of the commentaries that I consulted is that it probably has nothing to do with the temperature and everything to do with the holiness of God. That this coal comes from the altar of God. So the angels that are there to proclaim, you know, that he is holy, the angels that are with him all the time cannot even pick up that coal with their hands. They use tongs to pick it up because they are not even holy enough to touch it. Isn't that crazy? Like the holiness of God is something that is just incomprehensible. It's just incomprehensible how holy God is. And so this angel brings this coal over and touches Isaiah's lips with it. And then um, the angel says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And so the coal from the Lord's altar is what takes away Isaiah's sin. It has been atoned for. God himself has done it. It has nothing to do with Isaiah. It has nothing really to do with the angel. God himself has done it. He's the only one who can make Isaiah clean. So our second word is low. The word low appears in the King James Version of Isaiah 6, verse 7, which is the verse I I just read. And so in the KJV, it says, Low, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Low, or in some of your translations, it might say, Behold, and it means to look especially at something that is impressive or remarkable. Low. Look, Isaiah, your lips, your unclean lips are now clean. Look what God has done for you. He's not destroyed you. You're okay. He's made you clean so that you can stand in his presence because he wants you here. He's invited you in and he has made it so that you can stand here. And so Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness. And then through this interaction, he recognizes God's holiness and God's mercy. The mercy of God to give him this this vision and the mercy of God to allow him to be in his presence. And so at this point, I imagine Isaiah's countenance probably changes a little bit. He goes from uh, maybe hysterical and fearful to probably experiencing just tremendous gratitude, gratitude in a way that he might not even be able to express that God would make him clean in this way, that God wants him in his presence. So if woe is the position that we take when we recognize who we are compared to who God is, then low is that moment when God lifts our face and he takes away our despair. He takes away all the things that make us unclean, and he invites us in. And so in the last section, uh, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord asking him a question. He says, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? And this is a moment I like to, again, you know, I like to make a story out of, out of this. But I like to think that Isaiah, at this moment, things click for him. He's like, oh, yes. God has just asked this question, here I am, this is my moment, this is why I'm here. Because Isaiah responds immediately. Immediately he says, here I am, send me, send me. He's ready to serve God with everything. God has cleansed him and his response to God's God's mercy and God's grace in that moment, his response is to say yes, 
Here I am, send me, I will go. He can do no less than respond that way, right? The God of the universe has a job for him, and he responds yes, right? And so um, I like that, um, I like to think, I like the idea that God gave him a choice. God didn't have to give him a choice, right? God could have said, hey, here's the job, you go do it. I've already chosen you, you're here, so now go and do. But God asks the question. He gives him a choice. Even though God knows what Isaiah is going to do, I like that he asks the question. Because at least for Isaiah, Isaiah has the opportunity to say yes. He has the opportunity, maybe even just for himself, to really solidify for himself that he wants to follow God, that he's willing to follow God, that whatever God asks of him, he's ready and willing to do. Because at this point, he doesn't even know what God's going to ask of him. And so I wonder if he knew if he still would have said yes. I like to think he would have. Because again, when we recognize who we are in light of who God is, then we recognize and understand the call that he's giving to us. And so go is our last word. God responds to Isaiah's volunteering as tribute with, um, with these words, and they're hard words to hear. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is not a happy message. It's a message of destruction, um, of God allowing his people to follow the desires of their own heart. They have strayed from him, and he says, okay, if you don't want to be with me, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. These people have done their own thing for so long. They've ignored God and ignored his commandments and his way, and so God gives them over to their sin. And so it's a sad message that Isaiah has to take back to his people. But he doesn't ask God for a new message like we would. Like, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go and say that. Can we do something else? He doesn't do that, right? He accepts it. Um, he doesn't plead on his people's behalf. Oh, we're going to do better. Give us a second chance. Let us, let us try again. No, his question is for how long, O oh Lord? For how long? I understand that you are just, and this is the justice that we must endure, but for how long? How long will this be the fate of the people? How long will they suffer? How long will you be far from us? And God's response, again, is difficult, but there is hope in it. And so God responds, and he says, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And it's that very last part that gives us hope. Because it's not in God's character to abandon his people. Right? We know that from reading other parts of scripture. God doesn't abandon his people. So this sounds like he's abandoning them, but that's not his character, right? He's faithful. 
His word says he will remain faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot disown himself. He hears the cry of his people and he always responds. He's always near to the brokenhearted. But he is also just. And he will let us do our own thing if we insist on doing it, right? But when we cry out to him, he will always respond. Maybe not in our timing, maybe not the way that we want, but he will always respond. He will always bring us back to himself. And so for Israel, they are about to embark on a really long journey um, of doing life apart from God for generations. It's going to involve ruin. It's going to involve waste. Um, The word says the land will be utterly forsaken. But then he gives them the image of the stump cut down, the holy seed. Now, I don't know if any of you have chopped down trees. My husband chopped down a tree in our backyard. It was a little tree. Um, But he didn't do anything with the stump. Because if you want the tree to go away, you got to dig up the stump. Because what happens? That stump begins to sprout that tree again. Right? And so now we have this, like, bush tree in our yard. Um, but, but that's this picture here. The stump looks dead. It looks like it's been destroyed. But there is still life in that stump. And so it's not the same tree that it was. That's gone. But there is still life. There is still, um, there, there's still something going on there. And God is going to redeem that. And that seed is the hope for the future, right? The reminder that God has not completely abandoned the people. The reminder for Isaiah, um, when things are going to get hard, that God is going to keep his promise. The reminder that the people will eventually be redeemed and return. And when things seem impossible and fear will become their constant companion, Isaiah, I think, is going to remind them of his experience, of this story, of his woe when he felt utter despair at the sight of God. Um, And then lo, the moment when this angel brought this coal and touched his lips and made him clean. And then when God told him to go, when God gave him a job to deliver judgment, but also a promise to the people. Woe, lo, go. God is at the heart of this message as he is at the heart on every page of our Bible, right? We know this. The the Bible is about us getting to know God, getting to know and understand the character of God. Because when we recognize who we are in light of who he is, then when he asks us to go, we will do it. Even if we're afraid, We we will go where he tells us to go, where he asks us to go. Because God is holy, but he is merciful. God is just, but he is always merciful. He wants a relationship with us, and he will do the work. He will do what it takes to make us clean. So the first question I want you guys to consider today is, do I know God? Do I really know him? Because I'm not sure Isaiah knew him until he saw him face to face, and then He knew him differently, right? And then the second question, or set of questions, is how does my knowledge of God change the way that I see myself? Are you in utter despair because you feel like God is just out to get you? 
Or are you allowing him to lift your face and to make you clean? And then finally, will you go where he is calling you to go? Not a job, not a vocation, not that. But will you, as a follower of Jesus, choose to follow him wherever he might ask you to go? To share the life-changing news of who he is with those around you, with your neighbors, with your family. Because God is more gracious and merciful than we can ever imagine. And that news needs to be shared with others. There is no one else in the entire world in existence who can enter into our stories and change our lives. There is no one, there is no one anywhere who can enter into our lives, into our stories, and change them. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. So we're going to end with a quote from A.W. Tozer in one of my favorite books, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you haven't read that book, please go get it. It's tiny, but it's really good, The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is from his chapter on holiness. He says, we must hide our, our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in his son while he disciplines and chastens and purges us that we may be partakers of his holiness. Let me pray for y'all. Heavenly Father, Lord, may you uh, give us eyes to see and understand your holiness the way that you did for Isaiah, Lord. May we see you for who you are, holy, 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 all-powerful. God, you are the only one who can step into our stories, who can change our lives, who can make us clean. And so I ask, Father, that you would make each one of us clean. God, that we might turn our faces to you that we might trust you anew today, knowing that, Lord, you are faithful. You will always remain faithful. And you are always near to the brokenhearted. You are near to us. Even if we have strayed from you, God, you and your power bring us back to yourself. There is nowhere we can go where you are not there. God, we cannot hide from your presence. You know us, you love us, and more importantly, God, you invite us in to your presence. God, we are overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness for the fact that you would invite us in, Lord. Make us clean, make us worthy of your presence. Teach us how to follow you. And God, help us to be obedient to go where you are calling us to go. Father, I thank you for these women who are faithful to following you, to studying your word, to getting to know you, God. May you continue to create in us an appetite where we want to know more and more and more of you. God, thank you so much for this time. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
Um, the question, I don't know if they were able to put it up there, but I want to make sure the question for you guys to discuss at your tables is that second one. How does the knowledge of who God is change the way that you see yourself? So that's what you'll discuss at your tables for just a little bit. How does the knowledge of who God is change the way that you see yourself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.